The Digital Salon is a curation of listening experiences produced by the alumni and affiliated members of the UCLA Urban Humanities Initiative. In our pilot season, our contributors meditate on the theme of the portal. Through readings, sound walks, audio collages, interviews, and more, we seek out the openings, fissures, and apertures within the pandemic. We're your hosts. I'm Gus Wendell. And I'm Jacqueline Barrios. For our first episode, we pay tribute to the writer and activist Arundhati Roy through a reading of the first chapter of her newest novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, and discuss the episodes to come. Okay, are we ready? Yeah, do you mind going up, scrolling up? Okay. Starting here? Yeah. Okay, right. and we're ready. is to hold justice in your heart. The first thing, you know, that is the first and primary thing. Like, why do we believe that human beings are equal, that animals should have a place? From that you proceed, not from do we believe that the president should have a, a great palette, you know? I mean, right. yeah. first you start with the idea of justice. Mm. In Arundhati Roy's newest novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, an urban space opens and closes the work's dizzying array of character, plot, and genre, the city graveyard. The novel's protagonist, a Muslim trans woman named Anjum, counter-colonizes the cemetery into a place of residence, where she begins to draw an outcast figures of the city into collective life and healing, including Tilo, an ex-architecture student entangled in the fight for Kashmiri independence. Throughout the narrative, the graveyard diversifies its programming, hosting funerals as well as music lessons, sustaining a vegetable garden and celebrations, a people's pool, a people's zoo, and a people's school. Things were going well in the old graveyard, Roy writes. We had the incredible opportunity to chat with Miss Roy, to whom we credit the theme of season one, the portal. She was imagining this place, she said, when she wrote, that the pandemic is a portal. Our episode has three parts. In part one, we discuss the first chapter of the novel. What we find out from this reading is that the portal is a place that at least fictionally can be inhabited. Written before the pandemic, the import of Roy's setting, a cemetery where radically new ways of living flourish, takes on more complicated registers. 
In part two, we're happy to share excerpts from our talk with Miss Roy, where we explore the importance of the graveyard site, along with her thoughts on architecture, urban planning, and the city. And finally, in part three, we wonder about what Roy's provocation might mean for us, scholars and practitioners of urban humanities, by previewing the episodes that will follow. Part one, the graveyard. So I think what really stood out to me about the first chapter is the fact that uh, Roy really sets you up in a, a place, and I'm going to give you a quote right here. And this is Andrew, and she, from Andrew's perspective, narrator writes, um, and she was living in the graveyard behind the government hospital. For company, she had her steel Godrej Almira, in which she kept her music, scratch records and tapes, and old harmonium, her clothes, jewelry, her father's poetry books, her photo albums, and a few press clippings that had survived the fire at the Quabga. She hung the key around her neck on a black thread along with her bent silver toothpick. She slept on a threadbare Persian carpet that she locked up in the day and unrolled between two graves at night. As a private joke, never the same two on consecutive nights. She still smoked, still navy cut. And I chose this passage because uh, for me, the the form of making a list of objects is important, I think, in really establishing um, the setting of where this character lives. Uh, and we know it's, you know, a um, it's it's she's re she's domesticating the cemetery in this sense. I think it's really interesting that the first thing on that list is um, uh, is music. Uh, scratch mm -hmm. records and tapes and I really do think that that just jumped out to me in terms of thinking about what the digital salon is trying to do you know trying to be a collection of these um, of sounds and and stories from um, our own collective so yeah so that that was a, a moment in the text that really jumped out to me the passage that stood out to me was towards the end of the first chapter um, when the imam leaves Anjum and Andrew is talking about loneliness, and I'll just read it. That day, the imam's visit ended earlier than usual. Anjum watched him leave, tap, tap, tapping his way through the graves, his seeing eye cane making music as it encountered the empty booze bottles and discarded syringes that littered his path. She didn't stop him. She knew he'd be back. No matter how elaborate its charade, she recognized loneliness when she saw it. She, sent, she sensed that it, in some strange tangential way, he needed her shade as much as she needed his. And she had learned from experience that need was a warehouse that could accommodate a considerable amount of cruelty. So this idea that, you know, the conditions for uh, loneliness are often created when one is in need or is vulnerable. Um, I found this really poignant and really apt, especially when we think about 
um, the conditions that are, are created around the pandemic and in, in which many of us find ourselves feeling more alone than ever. Um, and at the same time, Anjum seems to be suggesting that need is a kind of, is this warehouse, right? Or, or what, what is also a, a community um, where, it's, where the inhabitants are bound to one another. And, um, you know, she says he needed her shade as much as she needed his. Um, suggests that they are what we might consider a kind of community or family, right? But yeah, I don't know what you think about this idea of the warehouse, Jacqueline, as a, a warehouse of need. Right. Uh, I'm just so glad you quoted that. Um, I've, I think it's amazing that she has this way, Roy, of saying, like flipping it over, right? So need is a warehouse that can accommodate a considerable amount of cruelty and a scene right before you actually think of it, of it as, um, you know, uh, like a scene of care, we think, but it's also, you know, wrapped up in the, in the sharing of the hurt that the two characters inflict on each other. And so I do think, I, I guess I would say that, um, that, in linking this to what we're trying to do with the digital salon, you know, in, in us needing uh, a space to really be able to connect with each other in the kind of the loneliness that has that has opened up in this time that has that this time is uh, um, exposed to us, and I think that's what we're filling in with um, the digital salon in many ways, like Anjum, like um, Roy. I imagine that we are trying to, you know do what we can, what we have, respond quickly um, and make things in this situation uh, in the same way that the character makes a home in the cemetery, what might be a place of despair of what has been abandoned, there is still is this kind of um, storage place really for the storage place that actually in, in the end becomes where we live. Part two, the conversation. of the graveyard in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is in many ways literal because the graveyard in India is not really like the graveyard um, in the Western world or in, uh, in uh, Latin America because here it's only Muslims who are a minority, uh, a persecuted minority now in India and an even tinier minority also persecuted for the most part Christians who bury their dead, you know, mm. Hindus cremate their dead. So the graveyard, uh, you know, not only, not only is it, and, and, and when you're talking about a minority, the Muslim, uh, the persecution of Muslims by the rise of this, well, let me just say it openly, fascist Hindu state that we have now with 
all the manifestations of fascism, which is, uh, you know, lynching, police violence, um, uh, you know, uh, right now COVID has resulted in a, another form of stigmatization of Muslims as carriers of disease. Mm. And a, a relentless media assault has pushed Muslims uh, down the economic ladder and a, a, a great amount of uh, ghettoization has happened, actual physical ghettoization. But the poorest actually do congregate and live around graveyards. So graveyards are not just a place for the dead, but for the living too, you know. So in, mm. in India, I'm talking mm. about that. And in, Kush, in the Valley of Kashmir, it's a different story. The, the battle for liberation, the battle against what Kashmiris see as an Indian military occupation has meant that that little valley is just covered, dotted in... Uh, in graveyards because that struggle turned militant. It turned, became a guerrilla war in the 90s, you know. So mm -hmm. you had you had in the novel um, the graveyard where where Anjum's family is buried outside, just outside the wall city and then where Anjum, one of the main characters in the book, takes up residence and starts to live amongst those graves right. and builds eventually a guest house which is called the paradise guest house in English, Jannat in Urdu, Jannat guest house. So you have a graveyard which is which is gradually being covered by the, the paradise guest house. And then in Kashmir, the valley that is often referred to as Jannat because it's so beautiful, paradise valley covered with graveyards. And, and you know, so you had this conversation between these two graveyards, but that is in some ways the literal part of, of the idea of the graveyard in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. But there's another more metaphorical part, you know, where Tilotuma, who's another of the characters in the book, um, you know, when you, when you sort of come to that chapter called The Tenant, and, uh, and you, 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 it opens with Tilotuma like, you know, having kidnapped this little baby and she's a crazy, you know, archive, crazy archivist of the weird and stenographer of the dead and crazy girl. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's, mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a, there's a little three sentences I'll read where she's lying in, on her bed in the, in the, you know, heat of the Delhi summer. And, um, and it says that, she remembered, uh, you know, she could hear her hair growing. It sounded like something crumbling, a burnt thing crumbling. Coal, toast, moths crisped on a light bulb. She remembered reading somewhere that even after people died, the hair and nails kept growing, like starlight traveling through the universe long after the stars themselves had died, like cities, fizzy, effervescent, mm. simulating the illusion of life when the planet they had plundered had died around them. She thought of the city at night, of cities at night, discarded constellations of old stars fallen from the sky, rearranged on the earth in patterns and pathways and towers, invaded by weevils that have learned to walk upright. So, so mm. there's a sense in which the 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 gray that that we are living almost in a graveyard of of what human beings have the plunder that we have 
um, mm. we have committed, you know, and so it's like uh, we continue this illusion of life, whereas the oceans are gone, the, you know, the full of plastic, the, the mountains, the forests, and, you, you know, even COVID now increasingly uh, science is telling us that because of the destruction of uh, what has happened on the planet, viruses are jumping from uh, from animals into human beings. You know, so it's a mm. it's a it's 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 a manifestation of that. And yet, the attitude towards graveyards is different from, you know, the, the they are not they are in the book and today in the way we live, they are not the sites only for the dead. You know, it's a conversation. The living are also among the graves, making mm -hmm. a life. It's not ever only fury or only revolution or only love or only... It's everything together. Life and death, hope and despair, humor, animals, humans, all mm -hmm. of it you know, mm -hmm. playing in, a, in, a, in an orchestra together. I grew up in a small, uh, first in a, in a village and then in a neighboring small town in, in the South Indian state of Kerala, which is where my first novel, The God of Small Things, is, is set. And my mother, uh, my mother who had left her husband, my father, when I was very, very, like I must have been one or two or something. And she started a school in Kerala, which, which mm. she still runs. And, uh, you know, the first kind of thinking about architecture happened because she, uh, you know, she, she, it's, a, it's a very unorthodox school in a very orthodox community. And she had no money when the school started. You know, I also studied in it. We used to just rent some, you know, premises somewhere and fold the school up later. But when, she, mm. when it got going, she took a loan and she, she, she bought some land outside the town. And then uh, there was an architect who, who was a British architect who had, you know, obviously lived in India all his life. And he used to practice what he called no cost architecture, right? Mm. So he <laughs> started to build, yeah. So he started to build this school, my mother's school on, on this hillside, you know, and it was just, literally like with thatched roofs and uh, you know just exposed brick it was almost no cost you know and I, I mean this building just happened and grew around me and I grew up in this uh, in this environment of of understanding somehow that there was hardly any connection between 
money, and beautiful architecture. But while I, I studied architecture, I was hugely um, at odds, constantly at war with the, with the kind of architecture I was being taught because it was completely different from, uh, you know, what Laurie Baker, the, the architect who had built my mother's school, uh, was doing. This was just concrete and, you know, so unimaginative and so it, it, it terrified me actually, you know, and mm -hmm. also coming into the city. I had never seen a big city until I came to Delhi to study architecture. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, Kerala, as, as you know, it's a, it's a place which is more egalitarian than the rest of India, even if mm -hmm. it's not fully egalitarian. And mm -hmm. I was shocked by the poverty, by the exclusions that exist in the city how cities are really planned to exclude people. And I was constantly at war with my, with my, my teachers, you know. And eventually, by the time I came to fifth year, I was also, uh, I was also like a, a person who, who, you know, unlike my other classmates, I had no family. I was living alone. I had nobody to tell me what to do. So I was very, very reckless in my arguments and in my behavior and all that so um, I was uh, constantly you know in trouble but I by the time I came to fifth year uh, had a huge argument with my professors because mm. I said you know like for four years you've been assessing me and you know I would I would I would I would ask them like who is going to decide what is aesthetic so supposing you ask me to design a multi-story building, I have everything in place. Okay, the parking, the circulation, the, uh, you know, everything is there, but it looks like a frog. But <laughs> what, how, how can you tell me that this is not a, I mean, who is the committee that decides, you know, what is aesthetic? These kinds of arguments. And then when I came to fifth year, I, I basically started saying that, uh, I want to do a written thesis mm -hmm. on the city, you know, mm -hmm. they said you can't because this is an architecture school and, uh, you know, this is not allowed. You have to design a hospital or a housing colony or something like that. Right. So there was this big running argument and I said, no, but the thesis is meant for me to tell you what I've learned here, not for you to tell me what to do, you know, so finally right. they agreed. And I did wow. this uh, written thesis called, uh, you know, post-colonial urban development in Delhi, and it was really looking at how the city, in the way space is designed in the city, excludes people. And of course, um, there are parts in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness which are exactly from my architecture thesis. You know, where I'm, I mean, I'm talking about how even the sewage system doesn't belong to a huge section of people because they shit on top of it you know like they do that so it, it, that was that was how i came to architecture and how architecture taught me uh, so many things it taught me not necessarily in class but mm -hmm. in uh, you know uh, in my battles with my professors
idea of cities with straight roads are cities that are planned, like like New York is, you know, it's planned mm. over something. Or you have, so so you do have cities which are like Chandigarh, you know, planned by Kolbuji and Punjab. You have mm. cities which are planned and then those plans are ambushed, you know, mm. by people, by histories, by however. <laughs> and it's a constant process uh, where, but the city always is inscribed on the surface of the earth as a separate geometric form from from nature, you know, mm-hmm. from the natural contours of, of the earth. So, so that is true of a novel too. It's not for, of my, especially the ministry. It's not that it's not planned. It's very carefully planned. Mm-hmm. But then those plans are ambushed and it's an organic dance between yes. planning and not planning, planning, plans getting overturned and so on. Because in fact, cities, modern cities are so, are so, um, are so policed, you know. So the the like you saw what happened in. Uh, I mean, I wrote about it in the pandemic is a portal. Like mm-hmm. the when when they announced the shutdown, it was like a chemical experiment. All the hidden people suddenly in their millions emerged to begin this long walk home, and these people are hidden in the crevices between the institutions that city planners have created. You know, mm-hmm. so. So for a city planner to understand society, to understand history, to understand the economy, to understand material, to understand, uh, you know, what allows a human being (coughs) to grow roots in a city and what makes some people just like fluff that you can just blow away every time you want to, especially Mm. in uh, places like India where, no one uh, somehow admits that easily to being from the city. Everyone is from somewhere else, you know, mm-hmm. some village. Or then there are people whose villages have been have been consumed by the city, and then you know, places like Bombay, Kolkata. Mm-hmm. So, for me, studying architecture and studying and 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 thinking so much about urban planning is really fundamental to the way I write. Part 3. The Portal episode is about life on a nearly empty campus. I'm hoping to interrogate how universities are a part of our urban fabric and what this means when 90% of that population suddenly disappears. The pandemic is a portal to rethinking the town-gown divide. My episode is about the role of ethnic markets in urban life. I'm hoping to explore questions of neighborhood identity, gentrification, and worker exploitation. The pandemic is a portal through which we can witness the fundamental inequities of the city and imagine the possibilities for a more just economy. My episode is about the sounds that make up home. 
I'm hoping to both address and stir up pangs of nostalgia through these archived sounds. The pandemic is a portal to the familiar and the distant. My episode is about the sounds that make up home. The sounds of our daily precious routines and how they reveal small discoveries and grand epiphanies in the places that we find ourselves during the pandemic. These are all portals to new dimensions and revelations of home. My episode is about the Ship of Fools, a true legend for medieval Europe and a metaphor for both the disaster and mismanagement of the COVID-19 crisis and for the disaster and mismanagement of the multifaceted worldwide crisis of recent history. I'm hoping to raise awareness about how the COVID-19 crisis is a symptom of a much broader crisis because the pandemic is a portal to recognizing fallacies of truth, knowledge, expertise, and even our understandings of ourselves. Once we begin to see these delusions for what they are through the legend of the ship of fools, we can see that it is we who are the fools, prisoners of a voyage without destination on the global ship of modern civilization. Our episode is about technology and humans. It's about changes to the experience of technology during this pandemic. It's about how technology changes our voices and our senses. I am hoping to not answer any questions, but simply ask a question. Uh, how do you feel? How do you feel in relationship to the technology you're interacting with? What do you think about it? The pandemic is a portal to um, technological acceleration and to technological inundation, but it's also a portal to observance of self, and that extends to observance of self in relationship to technology. Not all portals are meant to be entered into. Benedict Anderson has defined a nation as an imagined political community. Imagine, quote, because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them, or even hear of them, yet in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. This communion is made possible by a sense of coexisting in time so that this construction of simultaneity across space has in fact become one of the most remarkable shifts brought about by the revolution of print capitalism. In a time of global pandemic, the retreat to atomized homes has been met by a counter impulse to take to the streets for a world worth inhabiting. It is in that spirit that our contributors have conjured openings, apertures, portals. Moving through them requires, as Arundhati has said, to travel lightly, to abandon some things and carry what is essential, to carry, as she says, justice in our hearts. The digital salon is a type of play button to a different kind of synchronicity, a style of imagination that goes beyond the nation, a poetic federation, an ecology of multiple beings, a movement that is stateless and without borders. One of the last questions we asked Arundhati was about positionality, 
our intractable starting points that vex even our first searching steps on our journey. So ultimately, positionality is something that people who look at your work need to interrogate. But it is something that you yourself have to be dynamic about, you know, otherwise you can't, otherwise you can't write, you know. But for me, someone like me, uh, I mean, one has moved through so many spaces in one's life, you know, from, from being somebody who's kind of uh, literally cast out by the community that you're supposed to belong to because your father didn't come from there or your mother was divorced or whatever, to now being welcomed because mm-hmm. I'm you know, a well-known writer. So partly <laughs> in your head, you're like, yeah, but I'm not forgetting what happened, you know? <laughs> but it's like one half is going on your knees, motherfucker. <laughs> Right. I haven't uh, that, but, that's, but yeah. yeah, but at the same time, you know, there's so much change in in one person's life even of all the various positions that one has been in or held, you know. Mm. So uh I mean that is the, the job of a fiction writer. Yeah. Right? Mm. yeah. And uh, then you know you can't hide I mean, you can't hide anything about your politics and about who you are in literature. It is the brightest, sharpest light that will shine on your work. You can't hide. So um, everything is known. And uh, everything about who you are and how you think comes through your work. So you have to trust that. It's like that little uh, poem that Musa finds uh, in reads out in Tilo's book where she says how to tell a shattered story mm. by slowly becoming everybody. Mm. No, mm. by slowly becoming everything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. everything, every city street, every animal, you know, mm. that is the effort. Whether it succeeds or fails or whatever is a different matter. Tune in next week for the next episode of the digital podcast, The Portal. For more information, visit our website, digitalsalonpodcast.org.